0: Hello. I am often confronted with the idea that it is perhaps presumptuous for me to think I know who I am. And I am often asked how long I've known who I am and. When I decided that I didn't know who I was, I used to not understand the question and I used to misunderstand my own answers to the question until I discovered something that changed everything for me. In Carl Gustav Jung's Analytical Psychology, the shadow as a concept comprises everything the conscious personality experiences as negative. I'm going to repeat that before I read the rest of the definition. In Carl Gustav Jung's Analytical Psychology, the shadow as a concept comprises everything the conscious personality experiences as negative. Everything being the key word. In dreams and fantasies, the shadow appears with the characteristics of a personality of the same sex as the ego, but in a very different configuration. Once I discovered this, I ran down a road That led to publishing for the first time a theory that I had, which I was able to back up with historical data. So Robert Louis Stevenson, who was a rich young man when he was born, did not want to disappoint his parents and embarrass them. In fact, in the movie The Prestige, Hugh Jackman's character who changes his name so not to embarrass his family, the great Danton. He is based loosely on what Stevenson went through. Stevenson moved to Edinburgh, where there is the school, the Robert Louis Stevenson school, and obviously he wrote Treasure Island. Um, but he also wrote The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I read that many times as a child. I read it, I've read it many times as an adult. And I came up with, despite the fact that it's not the most pleasant metaphor, the truth is that when I read into it, and just to, just to remind you of what we're dealing with here, That when we talk of Jekyll or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the two contrasting or opposed aspects of one person, Jekyll is the good man, Hyde is the evil that is present. The phrase comes from Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, published in 1886. In this, Dr. Jekyll is a physician who is conscious of the duality, the mixture of good and evil. In his own person and he becomes fascinated by the possibility of what would happen if the two sides could be embodied in different personalities he succeeds by means of a drug and is taken over by the evil personality of mr hyde the result for both is a disaster now while that is fiction I did begin to look a little deeper into Stevenson's relationship, not only with London where he had left that he quite frankly did not like. He also had a very strange relationship, strained relationship with his own father and his wife who desperately tried to get him to reconcile kept sending news of his successes down South from Edinburgh to London where they heard nothing. And it wasn't until well after Stevenson's father died that he eventually became renowned throughout all of, well, the world. In the case of Mr. Hyde, he was actually writing about somebody real. And this is one of the reasons why he was not accepted in London. Hyde, Edward Hyde, was a member of the British Royal Family who was in the line for the throne. And he was unequipped for the crown, to put it mildly. He was essentially a drunk and he was a pig and he was not accepted or not capable of existing within polite society. And he was exiled to France so that someone else could take the throne after um, Victoria's death. And he, very strangely transformed himself while he was in France. And when he returned to London, he was not accepted based on the idea that people could still see the person that had that awful reputation. So the person walking around from a distance, even up close, was a accepted, polite, professional member of society who had a close relationship with the crown. But within the inner circle, within the court, he was not accepted at all. So Stevenson was mocking this. Did I say Victoria? I meant Elizabeth I. It was in the 17th century when this happened. But the point is, British history is so convoluted, I don't mind getting it wrong, and then correcting myself. It was such a poignant story for Stevenson that he was mocking the royal family for hiding away their dark secrets. What he was also doing was leaning into the idea that we all have something else. I originally wrote about the fact that I believe that we are hide first And until we confront the negative aspects of our personality, until we confront the dark version of ourselves, until we confront our own hide, until we can explain that part of ourselves despite the fact that it exists in our subconscious and despite the fact that it comes through in dreams and fantasies and despite the fact that we would say that we protect other people from our shadows, I disagree. You see, I believe strongly I know, in fact, from my own experience that the shadow is very easy to access. And it is who I was before I started on the journey of discovering who I really was. What people refer to as doing the work. I mean, I had seen Dr. Nathan in New York for my insomnia. But I hadn't really accepted the idea that it was a lot more work for me to do. And it took a long time for me to understand the level at which I had wounds and injuries that I needed to heal and repair in order to be able to see the world without blindness, without blind spots, or to minimize my blind spots, or recognize when I have blind spots so that I can fix my point of view, so that I can change the way I see things. I had to confront the fact that I had never done what is known as shadow work. And until I did, I didn't get a sense that who I thought I was was real. And then I realized who I thought I was was only showing glimpse of my true self because i was masking i was hiding i was pretending i was acting i was code switching from one situation to the next because i had grown up in a situation where in an environment where i was taught to survive every room that i am in the japanese have a saying popularized by Matthew Weiner, which is, for the Japanese, you are who you are in the room. Well, I had that as a child growing up and as a teenager. And up until I started my journey through a long experience with a talk therapist, and I did my shadow work, I was lost. I wasn't understanding of the fact that I was always in survival mode. I was always panicking. I always thought that my day at work was going to be my last day. I always thought that somebody would recognize something about my personality that they didn't like, that I couldn't explain In the moment because it wasn't consistent. And then I started to realize that perhaps people who didn't know me didn't trust me because I was so different from one situation to the next. I played rugby as an adult in Bayonne, New Jersey for the Rockets. And I played with people. Well, one person that I played with specifically named Mike, he and I worked together at Chase, and I actually had taken over his job in December of 1992 as he was promoted. And the person who was doing that job was promoted. Um, and so on. So he and I were close and because I knew how to play rugby, he invited me to play rugby with him and his friends on this quite competitive team. Um, well, they were competing with one another more than they were competing with the other team, but that's, that's another story. But, we played rugby on Saturdays and Sundays. We traveled to other parts of New Jersey together. We would see each other and after the games when obviously there would be socializing and drinking. And he once said to me, I never thought that I could like you because of who you are at work. And I realized that I still didn't have that comfort in showing any part of my actual personality at work because I was so afraid of the fact that it was anathema to the personality that would survive in One Chase Plaza on William Street on the 35th floor on the trading floor where I had always wanted to work. So I was busy surviving, busy masking, being the professional version of myself so often that I was getting the job done and I was getting promoted and I was doing the exact job that I wanted to do. I was literally in the place that I wanted to be in and the job that I had wanted to be in when I first discovered the word arbitrage. What? Seven years earlier? Years later, in 2011, it was only then that I started to do the shadow work and started to understand any of what I just described. I was just in panic mode. I was just in survival mode. I was just trying to keep my job. I was just trying to do well and get as much experience as possible in this place where I didn't think I belonged. You think you have heard a definition of imposter syndrome. Well, I can tell you now that the thing I came to realize is that I was an imposter. I didn't belong there. I wasn't a lifelong Wall Street employee. In fact, later on, I'm going to read you some feedback that I received at the corporate level. Um, And it does point specifically to the idea that I don't have the ability or willingness to compromise to work for a corporation for a long period of time. And... It was pointed out to me that that's actually a good thing. But (laughs) I definitely rubbed people the wrong way because they thought I didn't belong there. Sound familiar? The royal family didn't think that Hyde belonged in London, so they sent him to France. I immediately began to understand that what Stevenson was saying was that Jekyll believed that the evil side of himself, the darker side of himself, the Hyde, didn't belong. Whereas my understanding and my belief and what I learned from reading Jung and asking a lot of people about it, much to their chagrin, is that not only do we have to accept the darker version of our personalities, we have to allow it to gain a voice. And as it gains momentum, challenge it directly. Challenge it and consume it and not allow it to lead by being true to ourselves. By understanding that the theory is simple, the brain cannot comprehend the negative. And that we are causing a conflict in our own neurological makeup, in our own self, when we start with pessimism. And I am shocked by the idea that there are people out there who say when we face the difficult decisions or challenging times in business, in life. Our brain can't comprehend the negative, so it fixates on it. We dwell on what could go wrong and all the potential problems that could arise. And often that's precisely the result we achieve because of our backward thinking. Well, I think that there's some blame language there that I would reject. But I understand the point that they are making, which is... If we take a look at our own selves, progress is at the center of our existence. We cannot help but move forward in time. All of us are time traveling, and all of us are moving forward in time. No one is moving backward in time. No one is approaching the past quicker than they are approaching the future because that is not possible. Period. We have many examples of scientists who are working on time travel. But the most important thing that we have yet to discover is anyone that can find a human who is capable of experiencing what we have seen atoms do. And if you want to read more about atoms that can travel backward in time, I suggest you pick up a copy of Radical Notions and read about what I wrote in terms of how time travel is becoming real in our lives and the people that are at the head of that um, race. And they're only able to do it at the quantum level or at the atomic level at the moment. They cannot replicate it in a human for the simple reason that we are all time travelers and we're moving forward in time, and that is the reality that we exist within. Okay, And I invite you to accept that first. You are a time traveler. You are traveling forward in time. And that is inevitable. The future, the unfamiliar, the undiscovered country is inevitable for all of us. There is no returning to the comfort of the past and the familiar. And by the way, if memory is a choice, we are choosing to remember the past better than we it actually was. Even yesterday, even the day before, and despite my superlative memory. I certainly accept that I feel better about yesterday then I probably should have. And while should is a strong word, let's be honest. We all review the day before. And when we do it and how we do it, it affects how we progress. No, we are still moving forward in time. And this is why we cannot comprehend the negative. Because progression and advancement are in our what? I'm not going to say DNA. What I'm going to say is, in the fiber of our relationship with space-time. You heard me. In the fiber, within the fibers of what entwines us to whatever theory of the universe you buy into. And it is powered by weak nuclear force and strong nuclear force and thermodynamics and gravity. And as a result, we are hurtling through space, traveling forward in time. And as a result, we cannot accept negative or erosion or loss without causing a conflict within ourselves. Now, sometimes that's going to happen because that's the way the world works. Everybody has bad days. It rains on the just and the unjust alike. Even free of judgment, the quote in and of itself speaks of the idea that no one can escape the storm because it comes to everyone. Is what you do during and after the storm that matters. Well, I was having quite the storm before I discovered my relationship with my shadow. And before I started giving it a voice, and before I started doing the work to consume it, to own it, to take responsibility for it, and to actually understand the most about myself I had ever understood. And sure enough, (laughs) let's be clear, I'm about to read you um, a... uh, Excerpt from my diary during um, the time when I was doing my shadow work. I will pick up on, it says here that it was the 10th of January, 2011, which by the way is Seven days, it's a Monday, it's seven days before I started at Kraft in Zurich. So, I'm neither lost nor broken, nor anything but trapped in a box of my own design. I'm on the verge of entering an exciting and unbelievable time that will fortify my reputation as an innovator, aid my financial recovery, and give me the time to start molding bricks for the foundation I will one day want to build on. I was recently divorced, as you might remember. I have identified a future for so many things, and now I am in a position to let those things, gardens, be tended by experts. My passion flower is my metaphor here. Planted in spring and nothing but a cruel reminder of the abyss I plunged myself into. Close to death as a result of my neglect of myself. Dismissed as refuse by the madding crowd. The subject of a heart-wrenching dream. A commitment I made. A focus for my idle moments. A lighthouse. A miracle. The most beautiful thing I saw all of last year. I will never forget how I learned something from a flower. Things you care about can't grow unless you do as well. To see it have depth and reach as it does having transversed an awful winter is nothing but a symbol of hope for me. I will never know gloom with lasting bite again. I am transformed by the beauty and color that passion flower has. I can close my eyes and see it now. I look forward to seeing it again. I can see its characteristics in other things and other people. I am drawn to these things now, repelled when those elements are absent. If something isn't going to survive the winter and then bloom again in spring, it is not for me. Later on that year, I am in Zurich, and I am writing to myself again in my, in my journal, having gone through um, a specific shadow session, where I gave my shadow a voice finally, knowing full well of the journey that I was on, that I wanted to become the passion flower. I wanted to become the thing that even though it goes through bad times, will recover. I want to be the passion flower. I want to be the phoenix. That is my archetype. So as a result, I went through the process and it took two months from that date. What I'm about to read you is two months later, when I was struggling to find my voice and struggling to accept the true scale of the shadow that was holding me back. I know the drill. I listen to negative comments and dark emotions and I stop being able to think. I feel overtaken by complaints and criticisms and plunge into a very black place. I feel as though I am being burdened. I feel as though everything making someone unhappy is my fault. What's more is I've never been able to explain how I simply do not understand why there is complaining or criticizing. I've never reconciled my plunge beyond their negative feelings into a place where there is rage and blindness. I say horrible things. I stammer. I repeat myself. I beat around the bush. I swear. I unleash something that targets anyone I love. When I come back to a place where I can see the devastation, I'm either manic remorseful, tired, or simply too stubborn to either forgive or be forgiven. It was once, I was once accused of being a misogynist. It makes me recognize a trait that all of the women in my life share, that awful ability to see flaw in something that I then take responsibility for, experience very little joy, and then be so hurt by my overreaction when they usually possess so much strength. There is no question that my nemesis is right. I do not know my own strength. It is an emotional observation as well as the obvious physical one. I bulldoze a little negativity with a lot of anger, a disproportionate amount. Is it that I do not feel free enough to complain myself? Am I bound to the notion that life is too short to find something wrong in anything, never mind everything? I have seen a beautiful smile though. One that to this day I can see vividly and one that reminds me of the beauty I betrayed and the gift I squandered. It also reminds me of the good in the world I turned my back on. Strangely, it also gives me hope. Optimism that I will one day choose having a home versus the nomadic trek I cannot seem to get away from. Empty houses with no love or warmth in them. Never mind a bed to sleep on. Everyone, everything, and everywhere have always been temporary. They always feel that way. People look as though they are leaving when I am. Homes look made from straw when I am huffing and puffing. Holding on to something often means betraying something or giving it away. Why do I flee? Why do I fight? Why can't I simply say, do your worst and know that I have the inner strength to survive any attack? Know that their words and actions are futile. Why don't I let them fall. Am I happier with the wolf having broken its muzzle? It's also not that grand. I am just an only child who knows no real home, who is looking for space to be myself. I know I think no one will like me. I know I crave attention. I know I need love. I know I am shallow enough to see anything as a betrayal. Strange how the major betrayers as yet go partially unpunished or unconfronted. It is my sin that the tiny ones get an irrational and unchecked response. I reply with unnecessary force. I destroy so much. I have destroyed so much. I have hurt so many people. I have turned my back on so many good things. Yet, I feel betrayed when people complain or are impolite or are critical. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a nightmare. That is the voice of my negative self. That is the voice of my shadow. That is the voice of the thing that I had to not only accept existed, that I was denying existed in full, but that I also had not started to consume and understand exists all of the time. And I am choosing on a regular basis whether I am going to allow the shadow to lead me or whether I am going to be my true self and accept the world in which I have consumed my shadow. But that means that I have found what? Balance in my own existence. You know, (laughs) when you work for corporations, as I have, as many of you have, what we find is that there is a word that they use And it's culture. And we know from experience that it is far from anything cultural you can ever come into contact with. And in actually, it is, in actuality, excuse me, it is what they would like you to be indoctrinated in in order to be able to survive in their fish tank. One of my favorite sentences of all time was. You don't see the piranha eating one another. Now, I'm not going to go into apex prime alpha predator metaphors. Instead, I'm going to read you um, a snippet of some feedback. Feedback, those, those, those classic times when you have to be quiet and listen to somebody say what they want to say to you. A lot of times I was taught that a lot of times they were projecting and what they were actually saying is things that they wanted to say about themselves. Then I came into contact with the idea that I was too much of a mystery for so many people. I didn't, They didn't have the ability to measure me. I mean, it was very few people. But this collection of feedback, I actually shared this with somebody I was very close to, and she said to me, they are begging for mercy, but that they can see all of you. And this was about a year after that session where i gave voice to my shadow and was able to capture um the essence of what it was saying to me every single morning every single afternoon every single night every single conversation that narrative that i just read you imagine that was playing full time inside of my mind all of the time while i tried to navigate any relationship was it any wonder that i tried to drink my life I thought I had, don't forget, but then <laughs> I realized that there are some things that you just simply cannot consume. And now I stand half naked in front of an ocean and I don't feel as though I'm in danger because I know being vulnerable to the person that I love and being Vulnerable and honest to the people that I know are vulnerable and honest with me. That I am in the strongest position I have ever been in my life. So about a year later, so now we're talking about probably April 2012, I am dragged through a process where Essentially, I'm given the option to I'm given a number of options in terms of how I want to proceed with 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 the job that I had at the time. And you know, it was it was common knowledge that the reason I was leaving was because I decided that I could not bear working with a bully. There was somebody who ran a huge part of the business and they were hired by our previous boss and um I was on a 15 person commercial leadership team for a 2 billion dollar category in a 26 billion dollar corporation that was previously a 42 billion dollar corporation that had basically split and you know I was challenged with the idea that one there was no strategy person two I believe strategy and innovation walked hand in hand and three I had to demonstrate that every single day and You know, it was difficult, but that's another story. The point is that after several months of deciding whether or not I wanted to stay, but I had decided that I couldn't because the behavior of this particular person, this misogynistic bullying behavior that I had seen him use over and over and over again in order to be able to graduate from running a country to running a continent for a business He could not do it, and he didn't have the ability to ask for help, and he was very difficult to understand in terms of the fact that he was a dictator. He wasn't giving you a brief. He was telling you what to do. He wasn't giving you guide rails. He wasn't giving you parameters. He wasn't even allowing you to understand his normative perspective. What he wanted was for you to do what he didn't have time to do, have the energy to do or wait for it, the talent to do. But again, that's another story. (laughs) The point is that I was then taken through this process where I was given an incredible amount of feedback and I was warned that it was probably going to be negative so that it could look as though they were doing the right thing by not making a bigger deal about my leaving And I'm going to read you the list of things that they told me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I am an executioner. I can wield the axe with neither gloom nor glee. I am a great repeater of messages. I liberate those clearly deluding themselves from what anchors them their fantasy. I adore my potential. I protect it. I over-deliver on people development. I deliberately drive my supercar at 60 miles per hour. What holds me back is ineffable or unidentifiable. I need people around me to progress my plan. I am not the type with either the attitude or the appetite for compromise to work full-time for a corporation. I am brutally honest. My mind moves faster than I can alone. There is no explanation available for the conflict I create with so many ideas at once. I know what I can do, yet do something else. This is the consequence of working alone so often and so much. I am the vulnerable, emotionally connected version of myself first, which makes people uncomfortable. I only respond to being tested by myself. I am Baudelaire's albatross. Now, just to define that quickly, just in case you've lost your copy of Fleur de Mal. So Baudelaire writes about the albatross, which is in you know, direct conflict with Coleridge's albatross from The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And what Baudelaire discusses is the idea that The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and this, is, and, and this has essentially happened, that the, the, the albatross is you know, anything that cannot be comprehended. That is what it's a metaphor for, right? So that the rhyme of the ancient mariner had basically told sailors what an albatross was before most of them had ever seen it. I mean, there isn't a sailor who hadn't read the rhyme of the ancient mariner anyway. In Baudelaire's albatross, there is an albatross that lands on the deck of the ship and they are completely frozen. They're lost. They now think, that this bird is going to be bad luck for them. Yet, they didn't see it land, it just appeared and they couldn't comprehend it, understand it. In other words, they couldn't accept it for what it was in the moment they had already started projecting what they believed it was onto it. And suddenly, the albatross takes flight. And it is not until they see the massive wingspan and the beauty and the majesty of this bird that they understand that nothing could have prepared them for this moment. And that the albatross was what? Something that they would now miss. But they realized they were lucky To have seen, because what it had done is taken a rest with them. And as it took flight, they realized that it was off to become more than it was amongst their crew. So that (laughs) is what that reference points to. I recognize the feelings associated with the feedback I have received, but have never heard this specific feedback. That was my response to everybody. The tides run my way, but slowly. And then finally I was asked if the messages were clear. I read that to somebody who I considered a friend and a confidant and somebody I was quite close to. And they ran an agency in Amsterdam. And I went to Amsterdam with this list and read it to them verbatim from the notebook. And they just looked at me and they said, she just looked at me and she said, they had no idea who they were hiring. And they have no idea what to do with you. And they could not accept who you were when you were amongst them. And now all they're doing is wondering where you're going to end up and what you're going to end up doing. It's funny because what I unlocked in terms of my shadow work was that I was so disappointed with myself for not having published yet. I'd written a novel, but I hadn't. Completed the editing process and I hadn't even thought about taking it to publishers or self-publishing I had already written the paper bicycle, but I saw that as a glorified pitch deck Just to look how smart. I am you should hire me as a consultant or as your head of innovation and I didn't understand its power And I didn't understand what it had lit inside of me. I didn't understand that I was already writing my next book. I just didn't realize that. And after I did the shadow work and after I processed a lot of this feedback and after I took on the next phase of my existence, as propelled by what I would describe as the two most important relationships I've had since 2010 and one since 2010. Um, obviously that's, um, who I'm in a relationship with now. And then one from 2012, who is my closest, closest friend, except for, um, the person that I'm in a relationship with now. And, and, and understand, we have gone through some stuff all of us separately we have gone through some stuff okay and we continue to communicate on so many levels every other day every day it's incredible even at a great distance and when even when we're together we 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 have um, a knack for communicating in a very special way but that I truly appreciate and love, but, and makes me feel loved. And my friend makes me feel appreciated and understood and seen and heard and loved every day. And I strive to do that for both of them. But anyway, the point is that, that you know, I discovered, I consumed my, uh, my, my shadow. And as a result, and I do, and I do know that this is how I deeply comprehend everything that happened. That it wasn't until I did that that I was suddenly able to write without judging myself and thus share what I had written so that it could be interpreted and enjoyed and not enjoyed and dismissed and celebrated and understood. And since then, I mean, I have written... And published Dear Son, More Radical Notions, um, Inevitable, Ironic, Incomplete, and The Rabbit, the Scorpion, and the God of the Dead. And you know, I'm working on my next book now, which is about the 20th century version of myself and how that, how I ended the 20th century, the last 10 years, last decade of the 20th century. And I, you know, really and truly am grateful for the idea that I went through a long and painful process. I mean, it took years. It absolutely took years. I mean, you're talking about... You're talking about my first therapy session with that particular therapist was in 2001. And right after 9-11. I had known about them before. spoken to them a couple of times. They contacted me after Henry's death and then they contacted me after 9-11. Then... Um, in 2007, I started talking to them on a regular basis all the way through the end of my marriage and then into, and for the next, I mean, the next 10 years, you know, I mean, I wasn't handed over to my next therapist until they retired. And that was, that was about 2017. So it was a long time. It was 10 years. And it, and, and, and a big chunk of that was the shadow work and, it was about halfway that I started to accept the idea that the shadow work needed to be done less than halfway, probably 2000. So I gave voice to my shadow in April of 2011. So you're probably talking about three and a half years into my therapy at this point. And, and then you're talking about you know um, getting through that and consuming that and really being able to accept. my life after consuming my shadow. The reason why I read you the feedback is because I didn't have a negative response to it. I didn't feel as though I was being told anything other than what people simply thought they believed or knew about me. And I didn't, it came, It made me realize that there were two things that were true. One, I was right. People don't understand me. Fine. But two, they don't ask. And it's not because they're not interested. It's because do they have the strength and the depth and the real interest? Or are they just expecting you to be a palatable person that they don't have to understand or manage that they can just work with. They don't even have to accept you. They can just deal with it. You're not going to rock the boat or <laughs> do any of the things that cause them consternation or harm. You're not going to come to them and say, listen, the next time you send me an email with ni- with a 94-page attachment, I'll invite you to consider that warning me that it's coming and asking me if I'm good at reading things on screen or whether I would prefer a printout <laughs> isn't something they're prepared to do. They just want to fire off emails. <laughs> <on two. laughs> I'm just, sorry, emails are on my mind today because they came up um, recently. So, because I don't really email people, I contact them other ways. Anyway, or when I do email somebody, it's because it's tangential to our Normal um, way of communicating. Or perhaps it's somebody that I require a deeper um, connection with. And what I do is I, I, I write it as though it's a letter and I warn them that I'm thinking about writing it and ask their permission to do so. <sighs> I don't like to sneak up on people in email. <laughs> so, anyway, I was able to understand and accept myself. And also, and this is the most important thing, I was able to understand and accept what was really hurting me, what I was using against myself as the only person who can actually hurt me and do any damage, what I was using as an excuse and what I was using as a crutch and what I was using as a reason to avoid the truth, which was I didn't know my identity. I wasn't able to explain who I am. And I needed to do more work in order to be able to do that. And I was much better at telling you who I wasn't. Now, I know people think that the negative aspects of their personality, they're inevitable. Nobody's perfect. But that's absolutely true. And I'm not even in a place where I say you should forgive yourself because, I mean, I use the words forgive and forgiven in that journal entry in 2011, and, you know... I have come to learn that if I have to forgive myself, then I've been judging myself. And if I've been judging myself, then I've been acting like God or a God or a creating life-giving force. And I am not that. Okay? I am being hubristic. I am being beyond the limits of my humanity. I'm acting in a way that is unacceptable. And... I learned that I believe that the idea of forgiveness is nonsense. I, If you wrong me, I should accept you and accept the reason why and understand the reason why and try to see and hear you. And truthfully, if I have the capacity to do so, if I have the compassion to do so, I will also recognize the fact that I hope that you're not judging yourself and that I certainly have no business judging you because I did not give you life. I did not create you. And you know what? I found that not putting my energy into judging people and not putting my energy into um, needing to forgive somebody and not putting my energy into... (laughs) anything that puts me in a higher place means that I have more energy to accept and radically accept, and especially myself. And as Tara Brock points out, people don't want to accept themselves because they think they're going to get comfortable and they're not going to want to achieve more. Well, that's actually the opposite that I've found. In my experience, the more I have learned to accept myself and see myself and accept who I truly am after consuming my shadow, recognizing that it exists, identifying its voice, identifying the places in which it works, worked on my behalf instead of my true self working on my behalf. And then challenging it and consuming it and learning how to manage it. Until I learned all that, I was incapable of coming to you and saying, I know who I am. So people say to me, How do you, you can't know who you are because you haven't done the work? Well, I am Martin Johnstone and I disagree.